a bow with me and let's pray. Father, uh, 14 years ago, uh, just about everybody here and in our venues and campuses, all of us, we were reeling uh, with what happened in our, na in our nation. Uh, God, we never thought that terrorism, that level of difficulty would come on, on our soil. We just weren't raised with that. And God, when that happened, um, it sent our nation uh, into a level of difficulty that we all remember. And God, you even know that the very next weekend, uh, everybody seemingly in America went to church. <laughs> God, we, uh, churches were filled across this nation as people were seeking you in the, their distress and their fear. And yet, Lord, sadly, um, within about a month, church was back to normal as people didn't continue on, many of them, uh, in their faith. The difficulty, uh, Lord, created doubt. And so, God, we want to understand that today. We want to understand how in the world uh, we can experience difficult times in this life and, and then, Lord, have it lead to doubt and, and even lead to more distance from you. Help us to do that because, God, we don't want that to happen in our lives. We want to be men and women who, in the midst of our difficulty, even today, God, uh, look to you and remain faithful. Uh, may your son, Jesus, teach us about that now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. amen. So if there's anything that we have learned in this series on doubt, and we're in the final and seventh week, it is simply this, and that is that doubt is an equal opportunity employer, right? I mean, it really is. Every one of us here has struggled with doubt. We've been employed by doubt. It comes after each and every one of us. And all of us know, as soon as you mention the word doubt, what we mean by that. Uh, the great Christian skeptic, Rene Descartes, once said it this way. Look up here on your screen. He said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. <laughs> and so it's no coincidence that as we've made our way through these two big chapters on doubt in John's gospel, where people are now struggling with who Jesus is and why he came to this earth, that all the major players... In Jesus' life at this point in John's gospel are struggling with doubt. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders are doubting. The crowds are doubting. And as we're going to see today, even the disciples are doubting. It's like they've all read Rene Descartes' call uh, to doubt at some point in their life. And now is the point where they're doubting. And so as we've seen in John 5 and 6, as we've been tracking over the last couple of months here in our church, uh, we've noticed that there are even some triggers in our lives, things that all of us experience from time to time that can actually cause us to doubt. They become seedbeds, if you will, for doubt. We've looked at things like legalism, pride, ignorance, confusion, fear, and even last week, naturalism. All things that we need to be aware of if we're ever going to deal effectively with doubt in our lives. And hopefully, if you've been with us in this series, these things have been helpful for you to recognize and even own in your life so that you can control them and not have them control you. But as you guessed it, we're not quite finished yet. There's a few more verses at the tail end of chapter 6 here, and they reveal to us a seventh seed of doubt to be aware of. And I'll just warn you right now, it is hands down the most powerful one of all the ones that we're going to have looked at. And so here it is. Here's our main point today, and this wraps up the two chapters in this series on doubt. We've saved the best for last, if you will, and it's simply this. 
And that is that the most potent seed of doubt for those who are followers of Jesus, who are following Jesus, is difficulty. Uh, hands down, it's difficulty. Now, what do we mean by this? Uh, here's what you need to understand about this entire series. If we've been looking at two chapters in John's gospel here, we've noted that the crowds have been struggling with doubt. In fact, we've seen in this series that the crowd struggled with confusion and naturalism, and when they did, this got the best of them, and they doubted Jesus. But we've also noted that the Jewish religious leaders, what I've called the pastors of Jesus' day, also struggled with doubt. And they had four things that caused their doubt, legalism, pride, ignorance, and naturalism. And so the crowds have struggled with doubt. Uh, the, the religious leaders have struggled with doubt. And we've noted very briefly that even the disciples struggled with doubt. But we did one week on this idea of fear that caused Jesus' 12 closest followers to even turn to doubt. But when you think about it, or as you've been tracking with this, that's been it for the disciples, right? I mean, most of John 5 and 6 are about the crowds and the Jewish religious leaders doubting, but except for a little bit of fear, the disciples have stayed pretty strong. But all that is now going to change. Because as these two chapters begin to wrap up, I want you to notice with me what John tells us next in verses 60 and 61, and then verse 66 of this chapter 6. Look at what he says. He says, when many of his, Jesus' disciples, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then skip down to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I want you to focus uh, on, on that twice repeated phrase here where it says that the casualties of this seventh seed of doubt were that many of his disciples, many is repeated twice there in verse 60 and then verse 66, uh, many of his disciples were struggling at this point with doubt. And I think we all know that it's not talking here about just the 12 disciples. Those were the inner few. But it's talking about all the people that Jesus has garnered, all the people that have been following him since the start of his three years of public ministry. Followers from the first miracle at the wedding in Cana, and then in the Jerusalem healing where he healed the lame man, and then the feeding of the 5,000 in northern Galilee, and all the teaching times in between. Lots of people, we've noted, have been drawn to Jesus, and many of them became followers of him, what the Bible calls disciples, those who are learning from him and showing devotion to him by actually following him. And what we need to see before we parse this out any further is that this is a different group from the crowds. You got three groups in John's 5 and 6 here, the crowds, the Jewish religious leaders, and the disciples. And the crowds had a casual interest in Jesus, but it wasn't easy to, it wasn't hard to knock them off base. And the Jewish leaders had a lot of interest in Jesus, but basically just to watch him like a hawk, because they really didn't believe him either. But these disciples, what you need to see, these were the fastidious ones. These were the ones who had already made a somewhat formal commitment to believe Jesus and to follow him and to learn from him and even to trust him. 
And John says now, and you got to feel this, guys, that many of them, that's a simple term in the Greek back then. It means much or great. Many of them were turning back which simply means they went back to their life, back to their lifestyle before they had followed Jesus and no longer walked with him. And they mean spiritually and physically. So don't miss this. Something caused these disciples to doubt and give up on their burgeoning faith. Something very potent and powerful because next to the 12, these were the ones who had showed the most devotion to Jesus at that time. And that something I would submit to you is difficulty or was difficulty. I, I highlighted there for you in our passage here in verses 60 and 61. Uh, what John is telling us exactly was happening here. Uh, when the disciples, John tells us when the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then they began grumbling among themselves, and Jesus says to them, you guys actually take offense at this? So you got three phrases there. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we feel offended at this. Now, I need to ask you, and I know we're trying to dig a little bit deep here, but this is the all-important question. What do you think the it is that they were saying is hard? I need you to wrestle with me with that for a minute because commentators, Bible experts, are actually not in agreement on this. It says that they heard it and that they called that it hard and couldn't listen to it. And so the question becomes, what is this it that created the difficulty for them? And though some argue that it was the previous sermon that Jesus had just given, what we call the Bread of Life sermon that we looked at last week, in which Jesus parses out the difference between naturalism and supernaturalism. However, what I'm going to submit to you is that based upon my life experience and based upon what I know of the Bible, I don't think one sermon could have caused all these disciples to back off. I really don't. I think that it has to be more than just the previous sermon. We know that that sermon caused the crowds and some of the Jewish leaders to doubt. But as we already said, they had very little commitment to Jesus. It was not hard to knock them off center. And I don't think one sermon could cause the disciples to experience this kind of abandonment. I got to tell you, I've preached, I think I counted the other day, I preached like 400 sermons over the last decade or 15 years since I've been preaching and I got to tell you, though, some of you don't believe it, I have preached some pretty bad sermons. <laughs> Even here, I really have. You, you guys called them good, but you were wrong. They were actually pretty bad sermons. And I've even had people visit Scottsdale Bible Church, and they've heard me preached, and they've shrugged their shoulders, and they've went back to their other church and said, I don't get what you see in this guy. I, I've had that experience. And, and so there could be some in the crowd that listen to Jesus and say, I don't get it. I, I, I don't want to follow this guy. I'm offended by what he says or whatever. Uh, but the reality is I have trouble believing that there could be a mass exodus of all Christ followers except the 12 based on one sermon. I, I've never had that happen to me. <laughs> I, I, I've messed up pretty big and I've never cleared out the entire church. And so I don't think... <laughs> It could be possible, I guess, but I don't think that's what's going on here. No, here's the deal. I think that the it being described here by John is inclusive of all that the disciples had been listening to up to this point, 
and even all that they had experienced with Jesus. You see, what's happening here at the end of chapter 6 is that these disciples had begun to put the pieces together of Jesus' entire message. They're getting it. A message of radical faith and ruthless trust and a life devoted to him and his ways. And they've even begun to realize through all that's happened in John 5 and 6 that there's going to be a cost to following Jesus that the crowds and the Jewish religious leaders are going to be very antagonistic to Jesus and hence to them. So lines have been drawn, and I think they're starting to realize it here. And as they realize it, they rightly conclude in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Saying meaning all the things that Jesus has taught, all the things that he is showing us. This is hard. Hard in the sense to accept and hard in the sense to live out. It's just like what Mark Twain once said. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. And that's exactly what was happening to the crowds. Or, I'm sorry, to the disciples at this point. They are beginning to understand and realize that the road before them is going to be hard and difficult. And this difficulty is going to cause them to doubt big time and even cause them to choose not to follow Jesus. And to be sure that we're understanding it rightly by seeing it this way, Jesus then asks that great question there, do you take offense at this, right? And there's something cryptic in there. Here's what's cryptic. In the original Greek, that word offense is the Greek word scandalizo, where we get the English word scandalize from. And so really what Jesus is saying here in its most literal fashion, he's saying, do you guys feel a little bit scandalized here? Like maybe you're in over your heads? And what's their answer? Yeah, that's about what we're feeling, Jesus. We feel a little bit of bait and switch here. We thought we were going to get like eternal life and a great life here. And you're going to take over Jerusalem and bring back the great days of King David. And none of that's happening. And if we're understanding you right, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. <laughs> And so, yeah, we're taking a little bit of offense here. We're feeling scandalized. And that's the point, guys, is that life is hard. And what these disciples realized, and this kind of confused them initially, but then they got it very quickly, is that the Christian life, following Jesus, is not only hard, but it's actually going to be harder than even life itself. And that when we experience difficulty in life and then that insult to injury experience difficulty in trying to follow God, we feel scandalized and we get angry. And in this anger, don't miss this, we are very tempted to what? To doubt. And in this anger, we begin to question, why did we follow him in the first place? Maybe we made a big mistake in following Jesus in the first place. And we can't reconcile how in the world can we follow God and have a really difficult life. And before you know it, difficulty becomes the fertile soil for doubts to be planted in, germinate within, take root in, and then grow in, all as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. The original disciples experienced it Millions have experienced it since then. And so there's going to be times when you and I experience it today as well. 
And every great Christian author has owned this, and I've been talking to authors over the years. They've recognized that difficulty for the follower of Jesus is going to be the most or hardest thing we go through, and it's going to cause us to want to turn back. Uh, John Stott, one of the great authors of the last century, said it this way. He, he lived to be about 98 years old, finally went to be with the Lord, a great statesman for Christianity. And at one point, he said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. He says sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. And guys, he's right. That when we suffer and have difficulty, especially as ones who with all our heart are trying to do the right thing and follow Jesus, there's something inside of us that feels scandalized, wronged at the deepest level. And when we feel this way, it's really easy to doubt and want to put this God thing on the shelf. And all I can say from an experiential standpoint, is that as a pastor who works week in and week out with you guys, with God's people, and have been now for over a quarter of a century, I see this happen all the time. I get a front row seat to this working in your life and mine on a regular basis. I hadn't been a pastor but a couple of years until I realized just intuitively that the, the, the difficulty was going to be the one thing that caused many of us to want to turn back. I can remember in my very first church in Detroit, there was a new family in the church. They were brand new Christians. They had a couple of small, beautiful kids. They're all excited about the Lord. They were even reading their kids' Jesus stories at bedtime and all of that. And one day we got the call that one of their toddlers just died in a freak accident on a local playground. And they went into that infamous tunnel of chaos of saying, why God, how God, what in the world is going on in my life? In my church in London, Ontario, I had a couple that were dear friends of mine, and they were about Kim's and mine age, and they were working a little bit older, working all of their lives and dual-income jobs just to get to retirement. And they got their kids through college, and they saved but were generous at the same time, and they were dreaming about what retirement was going to look like together. They'd been through the mill and a lot of ups and downs together. And all of a sudden, at the age of 58, she gets a lump and one year later, she's home with the Lord, leaving him to wonder, what in the world happened? Uh, Larry Crabb calls that shattered dreams. And, and it makes you wonder, what is God up to? Or how about the single gal in my last church in Cleveland who reached 20 and was hoping for a man, and then 30 and didn't find a man, and then she reached 40 and still had not found a mate? And she told me, I don't feel like I have the gift of celibacy at all. I've been so faithful to God. I pray every day he would bring somebody my way, and he doesn't. And it's in that kind of difficulty. We wonder, what is he up to? You see, you and I all know this. I mean, life is difficult. And not only are Christ followers not immune, what we need to see today is that we're actually, by following Jesus, opening up ourselves to double whammies, even triple whammies, precisely because we follow Jesus. And let me give you a quick primer on difficulty, as if we haven't talked about it enough today. But let's be really clear on this. The Bible says that the moment you follow Jesus, you all of a sudden now got three enemies. You know what they are? The world, the devil, 
and even your own flesh, a part of it yourself. Very clear in the scriptures that as a follower of Jesus, you got three things every day when you wake up that, 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 have tar, that, that are shooting that target on your back. Obviously, now the world is no longer our home. We know we were made for a different place, a better place. And the Bible makes it very clear that there will be times where the value system of a Christ follower is going to cut against the grain of the value system of a particular culture, and it's going to create friction. And it's going to create even persecution and difficulty. And I got to tell you, this is for another sermon, but we all know this. Christians in America are now going to experience this one in increasing measure in the days ahead like we never thought possible. This is not our grandparents' world anymore. And so the world and the culture that we live in many times is going to create difficulty for a follower of Jesus. And then as if this were not enough, the Bible then affirms we have dark, unseen powers that are now warring against our very soul because we're now a threat on a spiritual level to what the Bible calls evil. And evil is personified in the Bible. It is real. The devil is real. There's evil spirits and they're real. In fact, the Bible says this, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let me ask you this, who do you think that someone is? I tell you, it's not the guy that's already sold his soul to evil. Uh, the devil doesn't care about that guy. He cares about you. He, he cares about the fact that you're trying to do the right thing and to walk with God. And so sometimes those temptations you experience and those thoughts and those feelings, you wonder, how in the world can I even think that? You're being tempted in ways you don't even realize. So the world's not friendly to you. Certainly the evil one's not friendly to you. And then, in addition to this, we still battle our own flesh and human frailty. And this is probably the most insidious one for some of us. And here's why it's insidious. Because as a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be a cut above. Amen? Let's say that one again. You're supposed to be a cut above. Amen? Amen. Not more holier than thou, because then that would mean you don't have humility. But the reality is, is that you are supposed to be righteous. You are supposed to be good. You're supposed to be salt and light in this world. And what's insidious is that none of us live that perfectly. The Bible says we got feet of clay. We're going to battle our flesh and at times even lose the battle. It's just you think the world's going to understand that? <laughs> Not at all. And so again, I, I call it the triple threat. You got the world, the evil one, the flesh, all bent on one thing, making life difficult for the believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe now you can see why my main point was so well thought out and carefully worded, because I did. I thought about this long and hard. In fact, I rewrote this like eight times a week ago when I was coming up with this. The most potent seed of doubt for those who are following Jesus is difficult. And so if you're following Jesus here today, I'm telling you right now, it's difficulty more than anything else that you need to understand and be aware of and learn how to respond to if you don't want to be a casualty in the Christian faith. I can't share a ton of detail here, but I, I, you know, I always try to apply this to myself. I always think, well, okay, Jamie, what do you do with this and how do you respond to this? Because I think that that if your pastor can't apply it with you, then what good is he? And so I was thinking this week, you know, how do I struggle with this? And I thought, I don't even know if I can share with you guys all the things that I struggle with. Not because they disqualify me from ministry, 
but, but it's because some of them are personal. Some of them involve my family. My wake up, Hannah. My daughter's here right now. And, and some, you had your eyes closed. You really did. You were meditating, right? Yes, okay, I get it. Some of them involve my, 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 my family, and I, and, and, and I can't share that. Uh, some of them involve you, some of my difficulties, and obviously I can't share that. But I'll share this. Uh, Daryl, our, our pastor at large, our pastor emeritus, uh, regularly texts me. This is very endearing and asks me, uh, how you doing? And he's really funny about it. Sometimes he'll text me and say, how are you doing? I want names. I mean, he really does look out for me. And obviously I don't text him your name, uh, but, but he, he's funny that way. And just last week he, he texted me. He's coming back in town after being gone for a little bit. And he said, uh, how you doing? And I thought, you know, I, I, instead of giving him a long text, I don't like long texts, I thought I would text him a couple of verses from the Bible that will let him know how I'm doing. And, and, and there are two verses from 2 Corinthians. One's from chapter 7, verse 5. The other one's from chapter 11, verse 28. And, and I'm not going to have it up on the screen here. Just, just listen to what I texted him. Direct quote from the Bible. I said, here's how I'm doing. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, and besides everything else, my concern for all the churches. That's how I'm doing. But what am I telling him in that? I got my own issues. <laughs> I, I, I got my fears within, my own demons and dragons that I'm dealing with, and, and, and I wrestle with those, and I got conflicts on the outside and staff issues and church issues and marriage issues. You don't have to worry too much about that one, but we have issues and, and all of that. And, and then on top of that, uh, I'm constantly consumed and concerned with our campuses and venues and how that's going. I, I love how Daryl texted me back. This is all he said. This was really creative. He said, Conflicts on the outside, fears within, and on top of that, my concern for you. And, and I was touched by that. He hadn't called or anything since then, but I was at least touched by that. <laughs> what, what's my point? Life gets difficult. And, and you don't need me to whine to you about that. We all know it. But make the tie right now that when life deals you a really difficult hand, it is very tempting to blame God. And to wonder where he is and what he is up to and why he isn't doing anything about this. And so what do we do about this? Realizing that we can't uh, rid our lives of difficulty, uh, you really can't. Uh, what do we do then, like the original disciples, to uh, avoid being a, a casualty? But what do we do so that maybe we aren't too tempted to throw in the towel? I want to leave you three things. Three things contained uh, in this text here, right as I exegeted this these words of Jesus, three things that he tells us can truly make a difference when difficulties of life and even faith weigh heavy on our souls. And here's the first one, and that is he challenges us to learn to rely on his strength. Now, now listen very closely, because Jesus is going to make a big distinction here. Not your own strength. Look at what he says uh, in, right in response to this in verses 62 and 63. Jesus is speaking. He, he says, right after he says, are you guys scandalized by this? He says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now let's think in a minute, guys. This is Jesus' response to them saying, it's a really hard road. I, I mean, if Jesus was a good counselor, he wouldn't have said these words, right? 
Jesus is a good counselor. He'd say, well, let me empathize with them. Let me reflectively listen. Let me get it back. Oh, it's really hard for you guys. I understand that. And, you know, it's hard for me too. And, you know, I'm God come to earth and, and they're going to put me on a cross. And, you know, he could empathize. He could, or he could even try to say, you know, yeah, it's hard. I'm in the boat with you. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to gut it out together. It's interesting. He didn't say any of that. His response is, well, what if you were to see me ascend to where I came from? Because you see, the Spirit gives life and the words that I have our spirit and life. What's he saying? He's saying first there that he's going to ascend to heaven once again. He's giving them a little foreshadow of that after his resurrection. But don't miss what he's saying is he's going to send in power to the same place that he started from. In other words, he's saying in him there's power, in him there is hope, in him is the reality of heaven and life. He's basically saying to them, you guys right now are very earthbound and you're seeing me as an earthbound savior. Please understand, I'm also a heavenbound savior. And when I am seated at the right hand of the throne of God, I will rule from there in your hearts and your minds. And I will be just as real to you then as I am now through my indwelling in you, ruling from heaven. He's telling them that. And then right on the coattails of that, he says it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who gives life to your souls. Now watch this. Not your own flesh. See, here's the number one problem we have when we experience difficulty. Tell me this isn't true. We experience difficulty, and as good Americans and as rather strong people, doggone it, we're going to figure this out. And we're going to try with all of our might to fix it. And we're going to do this and do that. And, da, da, da. and God's up there going, you, you don't get it. You're probably in this difficulty because of your mess in your life. <laughs> your, your flesh has gotten you there. Or maybe it is the world putting it on you or spiritual attack or whatever. But, but notice how Jesus says it. The flesh, that, that means your own personal strength, is no help at all. It's actually a much stronger <laughs> phrase in the Greek. I think the ESV is a little bit weak on this. The most literal translation here is that the flesh counts for nothing. Isn't that stronger? Like nothing. God he is telling us, is the only one who can empower us to trust him. And if we trust in our own strength, by de facto, we're not trusting in him. And then he says that third thing there, the words I've spoken to you, the same words, interesting. Now, this is rich. The words that I've spoken to you, the same words that you find hard and that you don't want to listen to, are spirit and life. Now, this is really rich. Notice here, I don't know if you guys caught it, but he says spirit with a capital S here, the Holy Spirit, but here he says that my words I spoke to your spirit with a small s. That's really significant. <laughs> it's the Greek word pneuma, and the word literally means breath. What Jesus is saying is that when God gives you his words, when Jesus gives us his words, they are literally his breath breathed on us, designed to give very life to our souls. We're to breathe it in and go good, good. But in order for that to be true for you, you have to trust him. You have to see that his words, and as we're going to see in a minute, his actions in your life are good, and that even in the midst of difficulty, he is with you. 
So add all this up. Jesus ascends in power and glory to the right hand of the Father. He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower our souls with what? The very breath of God through the words of Jesus. And maybe now you can see why Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 1.3 once said it this way, that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because God says he has equipped you to handle the difficulty, but you got to stop trusting in you. You need to trust in him. So watch what he's doing here. This is kind of a fast one he's pulling on us, but it's a good fast one. Watch what he's doing here. That's uh, Thanks, Nick. There you go. All right. Didn't Nick do a good job with that? All right. Good job, Nick. <laughs> we started with initial faith. And following. That's what the, the disciples did back then. They, the, the wedding at Cana, the, the seeing the lame man healed, uh, you know, his feeding the 5,000, all of his teaching. So we start with the initial following and faith. And then, as we've seen, we experience difficulty. And, and then, out of that difficulty, we are very tempted to doubt and many times do doubt. And what Jesus' answer is to is to go all the way back up to the beginning. He says, Go back to where you started. <laughs> Go back to that initial faith in which, like a child, you trusted him because you knew he was good and try to discover that faith once again. I don't know about you. I, I, I sometimes feel guilty for that. I, um, there are times I, I was reading this summer, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy Again, and you know, I had, I had an insight that he gave me that I thought was wonderful. You know, there's times when I am experiencing difficulty and I will remember the faith that I had Years ago. Did you guys ever do that? Like, I remember that boy, that faith in college where nobody could talk me out of anything, and I was flying high, and I'm trusting him, and I, and I remember those days, and, and in that moment now, I, I feel good about remembering those days, but then I feel guilty because I think I'm just, I'm just kind of running on past fumes, you know. And, and Lewis pointed out something very interesting. He said, no, that's really not what's happening. When you remember those days, could it be that you're re-experiencing what initially got you to where you are now? I thought that was good. I, I thought, I, I feel guilty because I feel like I'm trying to relive something that's gone, but he's saying by the very memory of it, maybe you're trying to feed your soul to re-experience what you experienced back then. And, and that kind of freed me up. And, and that's exactly what God and Jesus want us to do here, to rely on him to get that old faith back. And then there's a second thing that Jesus shares to us to do when we are responding to difficulty, and this one is also very rich, and that is to commit to trust in his sovereignty. So we, we, we learn to rely on his strength, not our own, but then we also trust in his sovereignty. Look at how Jesus would put this in verses 65 and then verses 70 and 71. It says, and he, Jesus, said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a, is, is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And you know what's sad here? All the commentators focus on what about this passage? They focus on Judas. And they're all trying to make sense of, you know, how could somebody so close to Jesus betray him? And is he saved or not? And all these things. And I'm not even going to talk about that. I, I will do a sermon on that someday because I, I tell you, it's really not the heart of it. The heart of it here is when Jesus says, no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then he says, did I not choose you? What's Jesus trying to say here? Here's what he's trying to say. 
If you're a follower of Jesus here today, if you've come to any point in your life where you have trusted in Christ and you know that it happened, you know that you came to believe in him, you know what the Bible says? That's not an accident. That though it felt like you were choosing him, he was actually choosing you. He chose you. And even more, you didn't get religion. You found Jesus. Or as we just said, he found you. It's sovereignty that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the fact that one of the things we need to do when difficult times hit is recognize that he has entered our life. Remember that parable he's going to tell us. We'll study this next year. The parable Jesus will tell that if he has 100 sheep and one goes into the wilderness, what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And do you remember what Jesus says right after that? And he says, and then no one can snatch them out of my hand. Not even you. <laughs> you can't snatch you out of his hand. He, he says, I am that sovereign. I am that committed to you. I am that faithful. And again, I, I can't tell you how many times that I've been in difficult times and I feel like I have no present faith. I feel like I got nothing in me. I'm just beat up. I'm battered. I go, God, I don't know how I can go on. And sometimes I think, but you've said all along that this is your deal, not mine. <laughs> that you are more powerful than me, thankfully. And that you are the one who has invaded my space and that you're not leaving. And somehow, God, in the midst of this difficulty, I'm going to trust that right now. So we rely on his strength, not our own. We trust in his sovereignty and choice, not our own. And then finally, with great pragmatic grit, notice what Jesus then teaches us. And I love this one. And that's that when you're tempted to throw in the towel, as a last-ditch effort... Consider your options. <laughs> now you're saying, where's this? Uh, look at how this story wraps up here right before Jesus' sovereignty statement about Judas Iscariot. Look at verses 67 and 69. It says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So the crowds have all gone away. They've all turned back. And he says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So don't miss the action here. you got to love it. Peter is the spokesman for the Twelve. He acted like that a lot. He was very impetuous, and he didn't mind speaking up for other people. And his response to Jesus here is classic. When Jesus says, what are you guys going to do? He essentially says, where else are we to go? He left everything to follow you. No one else talks like you. Nobody else promises us eternal life and a true relationship with God. And nobody else is claiming to be God come for us, which is what he means by the Holy One of God. And so Peter's essentially saying, we're staying because we've considered the other options and they don't sound very good. And somebody's saying, what other options could they have had? They could have had a lot. They could go back to fishing. And in a very real sense, Peter's saying, fishing is not very spiritually rejuvenating, so we're going to stay with Jesus. Uh, they could have gone back to the temple and listened to those boring legalistic sermons of the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus has been exposing, but they're saying, that doesn't sound like a very good choice. Or, like some people do today, they could go back to family and friends and say, you know what, I tried religion and it just didn't work. But they already know that what they're dabbling in here isn't religion. It's Jesus. And there's a very big difference. 
Their religious faith coming out of Judaism, that was religion. Their following of Jesus is a relationship. And Peter and his fellow disciples are essentially saying here, as we consider the options, we're choosing the door right in front of us here. We're going to keep on keeping on, even though we know the road is going to get tough, we're staying with you. And all I can tell you, though it might sound fanciful to some of you, is that there's lots of us who still do this today. There are times where honestly, and I know that you don't like hearing me talk like this as your pastor, but there's times where when I experience difficulty, I really do think, well, what are my choices? <laughs> and I think, man, I could like quit this whole gig and I could move up to Michigan with the Michigan militia and buy a bunch of guns and hide out and do all these <laughs> things, you know, man, because I live now in Arizona, I have guns and so I could do that. And, and, and I even think, or I could go find some small church in Nebraska that wants to pay me, like, not very much, but just help them coast until the second coming. And, you know, life would be a lot easier. I do. I think of these things. And I consider my options, and I say, well, I don't think any of those things are better than even the difficulty that I have now, plus none of that would honor God, my church, my family, my friends. I, I think I'm going to stay. You see, I'll say it more boldly to you. Here's what I've learned over the years. I've never met a former Christian turned atheist who's joyful. Never have. I'm not saying it's possible. I want to be fair here. But I personally have never met one. I've met a lot of Christians turned atheists who are bitter and angry and have a huge chip on their shoulder. Never yet met one who was marked by peace and joy and said, boy, am I glad I made that move. The reality is, is that we do need to consider our options, and when you do, you realize that even though the road is difficult, your soul is best served in the presence of Jesus. It is. Why? Because only he has the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we've come to know, that word means by experience, that he is the Holy One of God. And though the road is difficult now, the psalmist promises us this. That though there's weeping in the night, joy is going to come in the morning. That this too shall pass. And that though it's very difficult now, I love that, that image, just tie a knot at the end of your rope and hang on for dear life. And as you do that, and as you trust in him and not yourself, and, and as you rest on his sovereignty because he calls you and loves you, and as you consider your options and choose the one right before you, him, he says, better days are going to come, and you're going to be glad that you hung in there. We're going to close uh, this weekend all in the same way. We have 13 different services and five different venues right now as our sanctuary is being renovated, and um, we've chosen to have all the venues and campuses close the same way this weekend. And that's what we're all going to sing the same song. And it's an amazing song that many of you know called Blessed Be the Lord. And it's a song that basically says this, that when things are going great, praise the Lord and bless him. But like Job, because it's a song that really has a lot of Job overtones, that when things go really south, the response can be the same, to bless him still. Because it's in the realm of blessing God and staying in the ring with him that our souls are home. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for the teaching here of Jesus as we wrap up this look on doubt. God, it really is true. I think almost every one of us here and at our venues and campuses can bear testimony to this, that doubt really is fostered a lot by difficulty. Lord, I know I've experienced it. 
And yet, Lord, we've learned today that we have some choices even in the midst of our difficulty, choices to not cave in, but to trust in your sovereignty and to learn to rely upon your strength through faith and, God, even to choose the door right in front of us. Even though it's a door of difficulty, it's a door in which you are on the other side. So help us to do that, God. And as we sing now to you, God, may these words not just be pious words, but may they be deeply felt by each one of us here and at our venues and campuses. God, may we with one voice declare our faith in you, that we trust in you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together.